HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023, and this is our 355th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, I have a special on-the-road episode, which focuses on my new book, ChefWise, which I'm super excited about, and I will share more details with you in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip, and then later we will have a special broadcast on my book with Sisterly Love Collective from the Philly Chef Conference, which includes a very fun speed round. Plus, I have an industry event announcement, and I'll close out with my solo dining experience. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be ChefWise. Yes, my new and very first book, ChefWise, Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden, is out today in the U.S. and was recently launched in the U.K. and around the world. The book's participating chefs include Michelin star veterans, up-and-coming professionals, and casual restaurant owners, and they share in their own words what's essential in a chef's everyday life. Featured chefs include Carolina Bazan, Massimo Bottura, Jeremy Chan, Mauro Colagreco, Tom Calicchio, Nina Compton, David Kinch, Rogelio Martinez, Nikki Nakayama, Elena Regades, Eric Repair, Missy Robbins, Omar Tate, Alice Waters. I could just go on and on. There's 117 chefs in this book. I am so proud of the collaboration uh, that we did together and so grateful to all the chefs for their contributions. 
They generously provided their best advice on topics from philosophy to cooking, sourcing, business, team, technology, activism, and future. There are 14 chapters in total. And this was a real dream project for me to collaborate with these outstanding chefs around the world. I ask in the book's intro if we need a whole book on chef advice and answer it by saying, yes, we do. I write, there is a dialogue to be had about chefs and for chefs as being one is complicated. It takes more than knife skills and mastering the past to be successful, especially today. Chefs have become part of mainstream culture and culinary rock stars, adding pressure both in and out of kitchens. They are depended upon to represent their industry, taking action, giving back, and doing good, while running businesses with very thin margins in an ever-changing landscape of new technology and media. And that's just the icing on the cake. I'm thrilled to share this Chef Advice book with all of you. So here's to being chef-wise. That's my tip today. Okay, I'm very excited to share with you a special broadcast from a panel event, which I did on Sunday, April 16th with Sisterly Love Collective and the study at University City in Philadelphia during the Philly Chef Conference in celebration of my new book, Chef Wise, Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World. I'm going to share with you now the entire panel discussion, which starts out with an introduction from outstanding restaurateur Ellen Yin, and then it follows up with me uh, reading a passage from the book, and then I interview three Philly-based chefs who are Sophia DeLeon, Sybil St. Odd Tate, and Melissa McGrath, and we talk about topics in ChefWise. There's also a Q&A at the end, and to note, the sound is a bit light on the audience questions as they were not mic'd up, but I think you will still be able to get the gist of the question based on the responses. Um, so uh, it should you should be able to follow the conversation on that, but I apologize that that is a light sound. Um, we're going to run this straight through and then take a break before my event announcement and solo dining experience. So sit back and enjoy. Here's our Chef Wise show from Philadelphia. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the study um, who has graciously sponsored this event today. Um, this is the official launch of Chef Wise, the um, new book by Sherry Bayer. Um, we're here today as part of the Sisterly Love Collective as one of the presenters of the event. And I'm here with my co-leaders, Jennifer Carroll and Sophia DeLeon. And our uh, other leaders are um, Jill Weber, um, Katie Legosby, and um, Alexandra Domkowski. So not all of them could be here today, but we're here to welcome you. Sisterly Love, in case you are not familiar with our organization, is a group of women, an alliance of women, who started during the pandemic to elevate the voices of um, food entrepreneurs and restaurateurs in the Philadelphia area. We're now up to around 120 members. Yep. 
and um, our mission has evolved. We started out as um, just a phone call with Rohini Day's Let's Talk, where we got on the phone and we were talking about where to get propane, how to deal with indoor rules, to-go containers, toilet paper, all that kind of good stuff. And then we transitioned into having food fairs where we rotated from restaurant to restaurant, hosting all the different um, potentially uh, viable CPG products. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we also raised $25,000 for Women Against Abuse, which was one of the first post-pandemic um, philanthropic events uh, with, I think, 20 women chefs and uh, close to 120 attendees. And as we've evolved, we've continued to focus on helping women grow their businesses as well as developing mentorship, especially when it comes to um, knowing how to become an entrepreneur. And that's one thing that um, we have members of all different levels, those who are experienced or think that they're experienced but can learn a lot more, those who are brand new, like um, I saw Amy Wilson from Milk John, um, and um, women who are starting their own CPG lines like Sophia's Tenango Rum, and Jen, whose um, business has evolved into private chefing and um, also CPG and entrepreneurship. So that's what we're all about. We are looking to um, continue to push forward. This is one of our events, um, and our next major event, we hope to be cookbooks and convos in the fall which will uh, celebrate women authors and women in the food and um, beverage industry. So um, that's what Sisterly Love is all about. Um, we're here to welcome a woman who has been an in incredible support to other women in the industry, as well as to young people and, um, and professionals, hospitality-wide. Um, I did not know this. Started her career at Charlie Trotter's in Chicago formed her PR agency, Bayer PR, 20 years ago. Congratulations on that. Um, created a podcast called All in the Industry, which is next year going to be celebrating its 10th anniversary. Created a summit um, right before the pandemic started. I was really excited about that, but obviously um, got, got stuck a little bit. Um, has been a leader, part of the New York City Culinary Alliance, as well as a member of La Dames Escoffier. And just to make sure that everyone knows, La Dames Escoffier is the official um, 501c3 sponsor of um, Sisterly Love Collective. So um, something that somebody said to, that um, people always ask me about, because I'm one of those Hollis Silverman and I were just talking about the fact that we're not chefs, and uh, Amy Alexi is another woman who um, is a hospitality-forward hospitality person, but not a chef. So somehow, you know, there's a few of us out there. Um, I actually have an MBA in healthcare, and people always ask me, well, you must have learned a lot at, um, in grad school to help you open this restaurant. And the thing is, is that nothing I learned in graduate school taught me how to open a restaurant. In fact, I had never managed a restaurant or knew anything about how to run a restaurant when I opened a restaurant. So um, uh, this book is something that I wish I had had. Sorry, there's lots of commotion. Um, 
I wish I had had mentors and people showing me the way because I certainly made lots of mistakes. And this book is a, is a compilation of many interviews with amazing people in the hospitality industry from Michelin star chefs to entrepreneurs. Um, and Sherry, I can't wait to grab a hold of this book and really dig in because I know I can learn a lot from it and I'm sure many people in this room can too. So uh, without further ado, Sherry Bayer. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ellen. I'm, I can't stop smiling. Um, Ellen has been a guest on my podcast as well, um, which I was honored, very honored to have her on. And I'm honored to be here today. Um, my career has kind of unfolded without really an exact plan, but I've just always gone for things and been driven. And so the PR company, the podcast, the conference, and now the book, it just sort of has happened. And interestingly, with Ellen noting about having this book back then, even for me, I, I note that in my introduction, something about, I wonder what my career path would have been like if there was a book like this. But um, so this is, this is ChefWise, and it's Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World. It's my publisher's Fiden. And the book has over 100 chefs, 117 to be exact, um, from around the world that have given their advice from everything from philosophy to business to communications to work-life balance, technology. Um, and it's just 14 chapters. And I... It was a dream project for me to work on. I mean, the people in this book have been my heroes, my culinary heroes. A lot of, a lot of um, them, I've been to their restaurant from my people who know me well, know I'm very into solo dining and travel, and I've been lots of places around the world by myself, and I've met a lot of these chefs dining at the restaurant by myself or sometimes with other people, but that's kind of how I got to know a lot of chefs, just from from traveling and being super passionate about the industry and being part of it. So I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I picked out a little passage that I was going to read from the chapter on identity, uh, which I think will tie well into our panel talk coming up. So um, it's one of the chapters in the book that's sort of in the middle of the book. So I'm going to read my intro to that chapter. Professional distinction, voice, position, and image. How do chefs build their brands and develop their recipes, cooking styles, and points of view? Being true to yourself, your inspirations, and your motivations is important to finding your identity. According to award-winning chef Pia Leon of, of Cajol in Lima, Peru. Third-generation chef Michael Eligbed who endeavors to tell the story of Nigerian cuisine at his fine dining restaurant, Aitan, Test Kitchen in Lagos, Nigeria, further adds that you can develop your own unique style once you understand and have learned from the experts. But this can take time. Pioneering chef of California cuisine, Jonathan Waxman from Barbudo in New York City, agrees, pointing, that, pointing out that cooks first need to learn their craft and then they need to understand the difference between being a chef and a cook. And what about the competitive edge? 
Argentinian chef Narda Lepez of Narda Comedor in Buenos Aires shares that the best way to deal with competition is to see the industry as a community instead, because in essence, everyone is on the same playing field. JJ Johnson, founder of community-focused rice bowl shop Field Trip in New York City, believes that competition is all about perspective and that a little healthy competition can be a good thing. Evolving is key in order to stay relevant. Learning from one another, not being afraid to ask questions, and taking risks are a part of the process. Young cooks should absorb it all like a sponge, gain experience, and build a foundation. Basics first, and then stay true to one's roots, always. So that's my intro for, the, for identity, and then I thought I'd share a little bit of the chef's advice in this book. Um, one, one piece, of, and this chapter happens to have, um, I looked, it was about 25 chefs in it, and the way the book is uh, put together is some chefs are in multiple chapters, some are only in one chapter, some contributed a thousand plus words, and some have less than 20 words. So it's, I left it to the chefs to, uh, I presented them with, with questions on different topics, but I left it to them and how they wanted to answer that and in their own voice. So these in, the intro I read, I wrote, and is in my voice, um, but the content in the book is really each chef their own voice. And so sometimes there might be a similar response, but it's it's all a little different in their flavor and the way they they see, see their advice for, for other people. So um, one of the chefs in this chapter is Claire Smith. Uh, and everyone that included in that intro, obviously, it was in that chapter. Um, so Claire Smith, uh, she has a restaurant core by Claire Smith in London. And she says, Developing your cooking style is really about tapping into your own culture, seeing what's around you, influences, the things that make you, that may have genuinely influenced you in your life and career, and that can be something drawn back from your favorite things to eat. It could be your childhood. It could be your travels or somebody you worked with who you've learned something from, but it should be something that really comes from you. I feel like there are always a lot of Instagram cooks. There are a lot of trends that flow through things, and people are cooking with ingredients or things that they have no connection to. And I think that we really should have a connection to the food, and, that it, that, and then it actually is authentic. It's real. It's much more powerful. How did people cook before Instagram? Used to be recipe stealing back in the day. And this is an, I have a chapter on communications and we talk about um, PR and social media and so there's more on that in that chapter. Um, and then I'll read one more from uh, Pia Leon, who I had mentioned, she has Cajol in Lima, Peru. And she says, be true to yourself, to what you appreciate and what you feel is yours, what inspires you, what motivates you, our identity. Know what, is, what it is made from, let's find what makes us different, what we would make stand out from the rest of the world. Gastronomic concepts are millions. Why is mine different? Why would you have to remember me? Keeping recipes would not be the goal, but proposing ways to use what we have at our disposal, always respecting where it comes from. Knowing the best way to be respectful is to understand the context of each product. That is why research is key 
and then fairness with each supplier and collector. Knowledge from different disciplines is inspiring for any cook. Knowing where it comes from, but also from whom, at what times of year, during what season, bringing together what factors make it exist. So there you go. That's a little taste of the identity chapter. Um, a lot of advice in this book. So I'm very, I'm, I'm very proud and, and honored that I got to work on this and that you all are here and interested. And um, I'm just very grateful. So to our panel, um, I'm very excited because I have three amazing women chefs here in Philadelphia. And we're going to talk about topics in the book, um, a little bit about identity, which is why I, I, I read that. So panelists, would you like to come up? So hi. 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 <laughs> this is fun. Um, OK, so, so today, um, I will introduce all of you. First, to my left, I have Sophia DeLeon. She's the owner of El Mercury in Philadelphia which is a restaurant chain catering operation and retail shop for, for prepared foods and handmade goods made by Guatemalan women and now has two locations. She was born and raised in Guatemala, Guatemala City, Guatemala, still on my travel list to go destination. Got to get there. Um, Whenever you're ready, I have a lot, <laughs> cool, a lot cool. of uh, well, recommendations. Well, I, I will reach out. And, and your concept here, so in 2017, she created El Mercury, which began as a series of pop-ups, uh, catering services, and a virtual restaurant. And then in May 2018, you created your first brick and mortar operation, and the concept is the fast, casual, Central American street food and churro bar that received a Best of Philly award within the first three months of opening, and you also are launching a socially conscious rum called Tenango. Um, so yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely going to hit up Il Mercury before I leave town. Um, so thank you for, for being here. Um, next, we have... Civil St. Aid, St. Odd? St. Odd, right? yeah. Okay. Civil St. Odd Tate. She's the co-founder of Honeysuckle Provisions and Honeysuckle Projects in Philadelphia, a network of community spaces centered around the values of ancestry, nourishment, and reclamation. A Philadelphia-based Haitian-American chef, children's book author, farmer, and social entrepreneur, she's the creator of C-A-O-N-A? Kayona. Kayona. <laughs> spelled it out for you. Her modern Haitian pop-up concept. And she and her husband, Omar Tate, who in Omar is a contributor in ChefWise, have opened Honeysuckle Provisions, an Afrocentric grocery cafe and food-focused community center. And I had an, a little time right before this, this talk, and I took a ride over there and I got the most delicious breakfast sandwich <laughs> and plantain snack cake. So I recommend that for everyone and congratulations, it's awesome. Thank you. And third, I have Melissa McCarth, McGrath, sorry. That's okay. She is the chef of Sweet Amalia Market and Kitchen in Newfield, New Jersey, where she cooks seasonal American cuisine showcasing Lisa Calvo's Kate Mate oyster farm, where Melissa assisted in oyster farming. 
Melissa helps curate the abundant offerings of Jersey sourced and grown, including seasonal produce, local artisan ingredients, local poultry, eggs, meats, cheeses, and more. The restaurant was named one of Esquire's best new restaurants in America in 2022, and she was a semifinalist for Best Chef Mid-Atlantic for the James Beard Foundation. And this, your place is also on my destination list. I have to go there. So without further ado, welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So I always like to start um, my, po my podcast out with, with finding out how people got into the industry. And so take us back a little bit. Like, what led you into becoming a chef and where you are today? I can't call myself a chef. Um, I would say I'm a food entrepreneur more than anything. And my journey into food entrepreneurship started when I was 12. And my, my brother gave me an ice cream machine, which I decided to use to sell ice cream in school until I was banned. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they were not very into kids selling things. I didn't want the school to become a market. So I love, you know, I love the, the making of something and then selling it. Um, and that was the first time. And then from there, I started uh, selling catering for friends and family. And, uh, you know, I never looked back. But I am not a chef. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Sybil, are you a chef? I, I am a chef. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a chef. Um, so uh, I actually started out uh, cooking as a result of needing to make money to pay back Sally Mae, who's not a thing anymore, thankfully. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, uh, my undergraduate degree was in African-American studies, and I was focused on talking about food and culture um, throughout the Caribbean, and I, I needed to pay off my student loans. And so I was working, I was waitressing in the front of the house, and one day I had a chef friend who was, we were in a Chinese-American restaurant, but he was Jamaican and Italian, and we were always talking about crazy things and flavors, and one day he was like, try it out. And so I did, and I loved it. So I became his apprentice, and then so 20 years later, I mean, we, here we are now. So I fell into it, but it was a good fall. Yeah, yeah I hear you. <laughs> what about you, Melissa? I moved out to San Francisco when I was 18 to go to college, and while I was in school, I just started working in restaurants to make money and to pay bills, and I just completely fell in love with it. Cooking in California was really an amazing thing for such a young person from the East Coast. You know, it was just like you have this like abundance of produce all of the time. And I just worked my way up in restaurants and realized that I'm way more of a like physical labor person than I am sitting in a classroom. So dropped out of college and yeah, 20 years later, still cooking. So yeah. Yeah, got, you all got hooked. <laughs> yeah, we got hooked. <laughs> I heard that in comments in the book too. Um, you gotta love to, you gotta love it to do it. Um, but once when you do, it's just yeah, you follow it and you stick with it. So with the, the theme of identity, one of the chapters in the book. Uh, Sophia, I thought you could, would you like to speak a bit about how growing up in Guatemala has influenced your career and helped inspire your identity of what you're doing at your restaurant? Yeah, so I, you know, I was born and raised in Guatemala and both my parents worked, so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my grandma was one of those women that she did not skip steps, you know. She, she liked making absolutely everything from scratch. And they lived really close to the markets. And I would go with my grandma to the markets and, and, and buy produce and buy chilies and buy dried spices. And I just, you know, all of that experience was just so inspiring to me that I knew 
at some point in my life, I wanted to do, I wanted to represent Guatemala. And, you know, I moved to the U.S. Like, I, I again, didn't want to be a chef because I wanted to have a business degree. And I thought that I was going to, at some point, you know, be an executive, retire, and open a restaurant. And, you know, <laughs> little did I know that, you know, all the work that goes into building a restaurant, you need to have a lot of energy and, and, I just had no idea. So I, I ended up moving here. Um, I, I went to school. I did an MBA. Um, and like Ellen mentioned, I didn't have any experience in opening a restaurant, but I wanted to do something. So this was in 2017 when, you know, the political landscape was changing a lot. And I wanted to make it my mission to showcase a better, more positive light, uh, uh, more, more positive side of Central America, specifically, you know, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, countries that often get a bad rep in the media. And, you know, you hear about poverty and corruption and, and, and immigration and, and those things are all right, but they, there's so much more, right? Like there's so much flavor and there's so much culture and there's, there's so many colors. And, you know, I wanted to open El Mercury with the goal of, of representing all of these small countries and shining a positive light on all of their flavors. And that's what I did. So I quit my job and I started doing pop-ups. I started proving the concept and, and, you know, bringing it to Philadelphia and hearing comments about, you know, flavors that people had never tried before. And from there, it, um, it grew into a brick and mortar. Yeah. Are you, are you planning to open more? So we actually just signed the lease uh, for our third location. Oh, we have amazing. two locations, and uh, we're opening a third location, which sometimes I'm like, yeah, I yeah. think I'm crazy. No, it's, you're obviously, you're, you're, you're doing things right. Yeah. Thank you. And, you know, part of when I first imagined doing Guatemalan food, I thought I wanted to do, like, high-end food. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to showcase the different ingredients that we had, and, and bring them like in a tasting menu. But then I realized that that was not the best way to cater to the most people. Like a fast casual, to me at least, was, was the easiest, most approachable way to, to get to customers. And so that's how Well Mercury came to be. Like, you know, a, a quick, easy service, like $15 and under um, food that you can almost recognize and that is, that is easy for people. Yeah, well, it's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. So what about um, Melissa and Sybil, more with identity? Is there anything you want to want to touch upon with that, or, or finding your voice and how? Yeah, I'm sure you I'm sure you got a story there. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> honeysuckle is identity forward. Identity <laughs> um, forward. Identity I like forward. That. Uh, so we pride ourselves on making sure that we are um, shining light, same in a similar way that you do with mm-hmm. Guatemalan food um, and black foodways in general. Um, specifically touching on on the the connection I have with Haiti and the connection that Omar has with the South and South Carolina um, and the migration that folks made to north uh, to the north and kind of telling that full story and so we we make very personal food um, we make dishes that we've either had before or elements of it that we've had before um, so when you eat at honeysuckle when you're eating our food you're really eating a, a part of our story a part of how we grew up um, and it's it's important we feel it resonates better with people. Um, and growing up or coming up in the kitchen, you don't often have times to really showcase your identity on a plate working for someone else. Um, and so we've created a space where 
that flourishes. And it's not just our story that we're trying to tell. We're trying to tell the story of a bunch of different uh, various cultures within black foodways. And, and we're allowed to do that. And we can do it unapologetically. We can do it our way. And, and it's, it's refreshing. And it resonates with a lot of people, not people that are from that culture, but also anyone. Because um, the food is good, the food is good. Um, and, and that's the, the point we want to drill across. The food is good, so good that it doesn't need to be shunned away, or and so good that it can stand up, t- up top with all the other Euro- Eurocentric foodways and the other ways that people want to showcase their food. And I, I think that being identity forward allows us the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Your food is good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That's a really hard follow-up. Um, yeah, I, I would just say, you know, it's, I feel like, you know, the industry can be so saturated sometimes. It's really hard to find your voice. And as long as, you know, you really stick to your authentic style and, and the way you like to eat, the way that I like to cook, you know, I just really love feeding people. And I think the food's really simple and it's sourced really well and speaks for itself. And I think it's, I just really like to feed people. And yeah. You do. And let's segue into a chapter in the book is on sourcing. And um, it turns into a bigger chapter than I even thought it was going to be when I was reaching out and getting advice from chefs. Um, But they had a lot to say about sourcing. So I want to hear what you have to say about sourcing. Because, I mean, you're you're working with oysters, oyster farming, and that's um, special. Yeah, so I met... uh... I'm the chef at Sweet Amalia, so uh, my business partner is Lisa Calvo, who's this brilliant oyster farmer. She has a marine science background. Um, She's one of the only oyster farmers that self-distributes. She doesn't work through any other distributors, so she sees the process from start to finish. I met her back in 2017. I was cooking in Avalon, New Jersey. She showed up with these oysters um, and her daughter, Amalia, and we just shucked them. They were like very easy to shuck, super sturdy super delicious and we just became friends and we did we've done a bunch of Ladam events together um and I just sourced her oysters and then uh flash forward to 2020 summer I had just gotten back from San Francisco helping helping my friends open um like a COVID pivot restaurant it was really crazy I was like I need a little break from restaurants went back and helped her on the farm and she's like by the way you know I have this uh little farm stand where I sort and wash the oysters before they go to restaurants because it's conveniently located halfway between Philly and Cape May. And it just happened to have like a full kitchen. So yeah, we just turned it into what it is now. But it's, it's been really um, awesome to like work in a restaurant where your main ingredient, like you're working with the farmer. You know, I see that operation every single day. I've worked on the farm. I know what goes into that process. Our cooks have all worked on the farm and you know, some of my cooks are the delivery drivers or pick up the harvest. And I think that just creates like a really special experience for everyone involved. Um, and then on top of that, we're just in the middle of Jersey farmland. So it's, it's, it's easy to source where we are. Um, it's really great. Yeah. 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 Everything I've seen online and everything you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. New really Jersey great. is such a wonderful bounty of, of, of not only produce, but like really we work some really great meat farmers and uh, other aquaculture. We work with the Barnegat Oyster Collective. So I'm a Philly girl. I still live here and commute, but I've really kind of fallen in love with this like Jersey uh, landscape of, of ingredients, uh, much like I did in California. So, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Anything, Sybil, you want to add about sourcing, about sustainability and... <laughs> 
sure. being local For and sure. all that good stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna piggyback off of Melissa. Um, we, we source from Jersey, uh, black farmers in the South Jersey area. And nice. we are very intentional in sourcing from our farmers, our black farmers first um, and foremost, um, because we heard a really terrible story um, of one of the families we, we purchased from, the Barty family there in South Jersey. Um, and they would go to auction with their, their products and no one would buy from them. And they sit on 60 acres of land. And it's just so disheartening to hear that no one's buying from them because they're black farmers. And there's so many people that are food insecure in, in our neighborhood and so many people that would enjoy their organic produce here in the city. And so we um, make it our, our duty, um, we make it our responsibility to make sure that we source from them and other black farmers and kind in South Jersey and in throughout the Philadelphia area. Um, we have a farm ourselves. We farm on an acre in Bucks County in partnership with Plowshare Farms. Um, cool. And yeah, it's, it's great because we're a grocery concept also. Yeah. And so um, we can literally throw things in the grocery case, use it for food, and then um, also flip things that are turning into specials and kind of keep a zero waste atmosphere around us. And um, we're very fortunate in, in that and being able to do that. And a, a dream of ours would, of course, be to one day establish um, a distribution network that kind of travels from the north to the south, sourcing from black farmers and, and you know, BIPOC farmers and, and kind of rotates and serves other restaurants in the area. So there's no lack of, of a necessity. There's no waste. Um, and, and these farmers that have worked so hard, who are generations into this work, aren't kind of throwing away their hard work at the end of a season or a harvest. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what we are very intentional about, and we do that from start to finish, and we're fortunate to do so. Yeah, yeah amazing. <laughs> what about you, Sophia? So I try to buy my produce mostly local, but I am more intentional about specific ingredients that I buy from Guatemalan farmers. So, for example, my coffee... Um, every time I go back, I try and, and so we have like three varieties of coffee and we try and go back and meet with the farmers and like see the whole process. And that's just really important to me because, you know, there's Guatemala, I think is known, um, for coffee, but most people, you know, they go to Starbucks and they see like the Casicielo and, and they have no idea like where it comes from. Like I, to me, it was really important to go back and like see the farm and like see how it's grown and see like the whole process and, 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 you know, since I opened the Mercury, we developed really good relationships with them. Same with the, same with the, with the cardamom and same with the chocolate. Like we go back and like, you know, and, and these are things that I, I think are really unfortunately underappreciated, even for locals in Guatemala. Like I have found that Americans are willing to pay more for these things that are, you know, special, like fair trade, organic than Guatemalans are back home. So I try to make it my point to like go back and, and find like really good ingredients that I can highlight here and, and you know, sell the people that appreciate them. Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, so the third topic I have um, from the book is uh, work-life balance. And before I ask you all your opinion of that, um, just so you know, there were chefs in the book that said there is no work-life balance. <laughs> that was so, so you don't feel like there has to, has to be um, that there is. But um, 
I don't know, Sybil, you want to start with that a little bit? What's that? <laughs> what is it? Um, Does it exist? Or how do you manage your time? How do you yeah. how do you work with your chef husband? <laughs> yeah, and, and we also have two babies under the age of two years old. So yeah, we that. are in it. We are in it. Well, somebody should have warned us. Nobody warned us. We jumped in. Here, you didn't warn us. We jumped in, and here we are. And we love our lives. We are blessed. We are fortunate, but we are tired. It's hard. It is really, really hard, but um, we wouldn't have it any other way. We didn't grow up in restaurants. Um, my family, my parents were in the medical field. Uh, Omar's mom was a physical trainer um, who is now in the medical field. And so it is something, it is very special being able to teach your children about where their food comes from and to have a positive relationship with food and to start that early on. And that's what we're fortunate and we're able to do. Um, but balancing it all is, we couldn't do it without support. We couldn't do it without help. We live two blocks from the restaurant, which is very, very convenient. Um, we are looking for a nanny, still don't have one, uh, which would be very helpful as well. Um, but we have a really solid team that understands the, the minutia of our lives and how we're operating and they, they work really well with us to make sure that they're respectful of our time and that they can kind of cover bases that we can't necessarily cover. Sometimes, a lot of times, it doesn't happen that way and um, we have to be the baker, bread baker, maker, farmer, all of the above. Um, and we do it because we love it and because we're also crazy. Because you have to be crazy mm -hmm. to do this, to be in this industry this long and to be doing all the things that we're doing. Um, but it is fulfilling and it is satisfying because we are creating an ecosystem. We are creating our own little utopia um, that exists for our children. And that's what's super important is that we are, we're not doing this for ourselves to enjoy honeysuckle now because we can't. <laughs> we are creating a, a utopia, a honeysuckle earth, if you will, um, for future generations to enjoy. And if we're doing it for our kids, then we're doing it for your kids and we're doing it for your aunts and your uncles and our neighbors. And that's, that's, a changing, that's a shift in the culinary ecosystem that is necessary and it's vital. And it won't happen just thinking about it. You actually have to do it. And so we say a little prayer when we wake up that we are super grateful to be in this position that we love each other because working with your partner is also very interesting. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it, it works and we make it work. And yeah. we're, having, we're having fun at the end of the day. So yeah, yeah work-life balance exists. Okay. Just maybe not Monday through <laughs> Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sunday after seven, it exists. Right. I love it. <laughs> what about you, Melissa? Got a yeah, lot of commute I, going on in yeah, your life. Yeah, the commute yeah. is tough, but like I said, I'm not ready to, to make the move to Jersey yet. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think work-life balance is something I want, but I'm also my, you know, when you create something and you care about it, like, deeply, like, that, that restaurant's, like, one of my children, you know? So it's really hard to take time off and not worry about it. Like, it's, it's a very personal thing to me. Like, I run our Instagram account now. I, you know, all the chalkboard menu writing is all me. So I think I'm my own worst enemy with any kind of work-life balance. Um, maybe one day I'll figure out how to, like, delegate tasks, but until then. But, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's tough. It really is. Yeah. But like Sybil said, you know, I also really love it, so... I mean, there's most, most times I'd rather be at the restaurant, like, get my hands dirty. So it's not a bad thing, necessarily. And Sophia? 
I, I mean, I agree with both of you. And one, I think we have to be crazy to be in this industry. Like, that's the only way you can survive, you know? You have to be passionate and crazy. And if, you, if you're not, then you can't last, right? Like, you, would, you could do a nine to five. And, then, and sometimes I think about it. Sometimes I'm like, if I had a nine to five, I have an MBA. Like, I could go back and work in an office and have weekends off. But I just, I can't imagine. Like, I can't imagine myself sitting in front of a computer all day and clocking in at 5 p.m. Like, that just doesn't exist. And I think, you know, I, I start to get a little bit of, I, you hear work-life balance is like a buzzword, right? Like, everybody... Everybody thinks that they want, you know, 1 p.m. yoga class or, like, weekends off. And I don't think that any of us who are in this industry came into it because we wanted that balance. And, like, balance is probably a different way. Like, I, I think to me balance is making sure that everybody is satisfied and happy with their job. <laughs> and, and that is balance. <laughs> yeah. Well, I relate. I'm not a chef, but I often say I'm... Feeling a little, I'm a little crazy because I jump on planes and I go places and I obviously multitask and do a lot of different things and passionate about the industry. And I think I usually say it's, yeah, it's like my work and social just combine into one. I can't really separate them. Mm -hmm. So, but I love being part of the industry. So it's like, yeah, if you're passionate about it, it's, uh, it, it works. It works. So, um, before we open up to some Q&A on my podcast, I always play a speed round game with my guests. And I thought it would be fun to do a quick speed round with you all. Um, I give you, I'll name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. It's kind of how the game goes. You, you ready? OK. It's not scary. It's fun. <laughs> I think so. OK, here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? Eat in. Eat out. <laughs> eat out. Indoor dining or alfresco dining? Hmm. Depends on the weather. Yeah, alfresco. Alfresco is nice out. Yeah. <laughs> Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Champs. Co Wine. Cocktail, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> Tasting menu or a la carte? Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, I, tasting menu. A la carte? I'm going to go a la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Small plates. Small plates. All right. I'll cross the board there. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's, chef's counter. counter. Chef's counter. <laughs> I, I fourth that. Um, tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. 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 That, that one gets people in conversation a lot of times. <laughs> okay, a few more. Cooking for your chef friends? Or having them cook for you? Uh, having them cook for me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I say cooking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Having them cook house. for me. Okay. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when? Gino's or Pat's? Neither. Oh, yeah. That's, I've asked this question in another Philly-related show, and I, I believe they said that. So yeah. neither. But is there a, another alternative or just... No, uh, I don't want to get canceled. Yeah, so yeah, I know, right? this, is, this is risky business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That's the one that, that we pass on. Okay, cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Uh, cheese plate. Cheese plate, yeah. yeah. And last one is Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Philadelphia? Philadelphia. 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 There you go. See, it was fun, right? Yeah. Okay. Easy. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, Wonderful. Uh, questions? Anyone out there want to ask 
me about the book or about panelists, about any <laughs> topic that we either talked about so far or that we didn't talk about. Yes, Jen. What was the most surprising piece of advice that you received back on any of the topics in your book that you were since I was talking about? I should like plan, figure out my answers to these. The one that <laughs> comes to mind was um, Enrique Olvera's in the book from Pujol and Cosme. And he answered. There's one answer in there, and I, I think there's a chapter called Fundamentals where I asked all the chefs, like, their general advice for young chefs in the industry. And he said, don't, it was something like, don't take any advice. You know, don't, there is no advice, basically. So I thought that was funny or interesting and not, not expected. Yeah, yeah. In the advice book, he's saying, don't take advice. So there you go. <laughs> Just uh, a little bit about the writing process. Like, are you one of those folks that writes a little bit at a time, or do you sit down and do a bunch of writing at once? Can you talk a little bit about your writing process, what that was like for you? That's a good question. Um, my process. I, I think, I feel like with writing, you kind of got to be in the mood uh, to write, the, the creative, you know, juices going in your brain. I mean, for this book, the way I did... I wrote, there's a long intro at the front, and then all the chapters, I, I wrote all the intros. And it was, I, I read through all of the advice in that book, and then I tried to figure out how I was going to summarize this <laughs> to make sense as an introduction. Um, so, but I typically write, um, I'm a night owl, so, and I wear a lot of hats, so I find that's my quiet time to write. I know some people wake up early in the morning and do that. I'm not a morning person. So I tend to do like quiet read, like writing work at night. And I'll do a draft. And then I always have to go back and edit myself and, re and then look at it, like wait and look at it later. Um, as someone who's worked for myself for a long time, I'm used to editing myself. But it was nice with this book. I was assigned to this wonderful woman, Lynn, was my project editor, and I, I had an editor. I was like, oh, this is cool. Someone's actually reading, reading this and, and helping out on, on the editing here. So, but my, yeah, my process is kind of to write and then step away and go back. Anyone else? So the list, how it came about, was it was really my own curated list um, based on my knowledge of chefs and the industry, based on my travels, a little bit based on lists, World's 50 Best, Michelin Stars, those, and then just people... Um, my, my publisher, Fiden, gave uh, some recommendations, but really they left it to me, and I tried to mix it up. I wanted to have a diverse list. I didn't just want to have Michelin star chefs. I didn't want to just have chefs who did tasting menus. Um, I, so, I mean, like J.J. Johnson field trip, he's in the book. I, the people I think I, I see as, as leaders in the industry and um, doing great things and just passionate about what they do. So, and I just tried to have different ethnicities, different different um, types of cuisine, different ages, you know, all across the board. Um, 
the, I think a challenge I had with the book and putting it together was I wish I could have a book of like like a thousand chefs or something because there's many people that I feel are, I mean, there's so many leading chefs in the industry. So the book is not, I don't feel it has like every leader in the industry, but I, I feel the, I'm, uh, the list, I, I feel really, I, I'm amazed that people like Massimo Bottoro and Dominique Cred and these chefs around the world are in this, this book. And um, some, I, like, I, I, I took a trip once to Singapore and I met Julian Roer at his restaurant Odette and I did his tasting menu. So he was one of the first chefs I reached out to to be in the book because I knew him and he was, I also wanted chefs all, all over you know, um, there are a lot of U.S. chefs. Or it's about 30%, I think, U.S., and then the rest is around the world. And then there were some, like, there are chefs in the book who are in from Dubai, let's say, and I wasn't as familiar with it. So I, that I was looking, I was, you know, reading and doing research and, and figuring out, like, who were the, the leaders in, in that part of the world. So now I have a lot more travel to do because I'm like, I need to go to every restaurant in this book. <laughs> I have a question. Sure. Um, so you spent significant time putting this together, and you have almost 10 years of interviewing and talking to chefs and food people in the industry. What's your advice for chefs? Oh, wow. My advice for chefs? Yeah. <laughs> One thing. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Just... Just keep doing what you're doing. I feel like chefs are the most generous, hospitable, wonderful people. And I think it's also really hard. And I, I mean, Ellen mentioned at the beginning, like I worked as a server at Charlie Trotter's restaurant back in 1997. Uh, and that was a really tough job. And I went to cooking school before that in Chicago because I thought I wanted to be a chef. And so my, my path, I, I feel, has, has gone in many directions. But I always look back at, like, having that experience helps me do what I did today. So, but I just have so much respect for, for chefs and, and restaurateurs because I know how hard it is. And um, I just say, like, don't give up. Like, keep keep doing what you do and following your passion because um, I think I've seen like people, it takes time sometimes and maybe you're doing it and you don't see like the light at the end of the tunnel, but like I feel like hard work pays off and you'll, you'll get there. So that's my advice. Awesome. Anyone, anyone else or should we wrap it up? So thank you. Thank you. All the panelists, thank you, Sherry, for being here. Thank you to the study. Thank you to the Chefs Conference for allowing this get-together and for all of us to be able to be here. Um, I know everyone's really envious of these blue and white books. Um, we have them available for sale. Um, thanks to Holly Laporte. We have on our website, sisterlylove.philly.com, um, a link to buying the book. So um, you can purchase the book, show us your purchase, and Holly will sign a book for you. And um, hopefully um, uh, we um, uh, will see you at the uh, reception shortly um, right after this. So thank you, everybody, for being here. And thanks again.
to the study for sponsoring and for Sherry's team for helping to make this all happen. Thank you. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and this is my special Chef Wise show, as today is my U.S. publication date for my new book, Chef Wise, Life Lessons from Leading Chefs Around the World by Fiden. I hope you enjoyed listening back to the Philadelphia panel. Um, it was a real treat to, to do that panel with Sisterly Love Collective and the study at University City and the Philly Chef Conference. And I was very honored um, to be hosting it. So thank you all. And um, now for industry news, I just have an event announcement. So coming up next Monday, May 8th, is the fourth annual Celebrity Chefs and Friends Golf and Tennis Tournament Benefiting City Harvest. And it's taking place at Alpine Country Club in New Jersey. And I will be there. I'm working on this event, actually, um, working on their PR. So I'm very involved. And um, it's a very highly anticipated event that brings together an array of star chefs, notable restaurateurs, and sports personalities to raise money for City Harvest, which is New York City's first and largest food rescue organization dedicated to feeding New Yorkers in need. Last year's event raised enough for City Harvest to provide nearly 850,000 meals to New Yorkers in need, and this year aims to reach that goal and beyond. The event is going to be hosted by social media personality, former professional golfer and model Paige Sparanak, who was recently named 2022's Maxim Magazine's Sexiest Woman Alive. And uh, this event is established and produced by chef enthusiast Herb Carlitz of Carlitz and Company. Um, he founded the tournament in 2019. And um, the lineup this year is incredible. There's over 60 notable chefs, including Jeffrey Zakarian, Michael Anthony, Jamal James Kent, uh, Marcus Samuelson, Esther Ha, Jonathan Waxman, Melba Wilson, um, and more. Um, 
Jonathan is in Chef Wise. Very excited. He's in my book. And um, these are all really outstanding chefs. And um, I'm excited. I'm excited to go. So if you want to be there, if you want to support the event, um, check out the website. Go to carlitz.com backslash tournament. And Carlitz is K-A-R-L-I-T-Z. And you could also follow at Carlitz underscore C-O. Okay, so there you go. Hope to see you there. Now, it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it's at Polizzi Social Club. Here's the rundown. The location. 1408 South 12th Street, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The concept. It's a private social club with cocktails and a menu of Italian-American cuisine. Since opening... In 1918, it is a place for members to relax over a cocktail and delicious Italian food among friends nestled in a typical South Philly row home. The owner and chef is third-generation owner-president Joey Baldino, who's proud to carry on his family's legacy. So why'd I go? Well, okay, a couple years back, I was a speaker at the Philly Chef Conference, And the founder of the conference, Mike Trout, um, traditional to give little gifts to speakers, sometimes at conferences. And as a part of the gift bag to the speakers, he gave us um, a membership card to Polizzi Social Club. And I... I, From what I see online, there's no memberships now available. So anyways, I've been holding on to this card for a couple of years and I finally got to use it. So thank you, Mike. My experience. So I made a reservation for two online. They weren't taking them for one. They said you could go as a walk-in for one, but I decided to make a reservation. I showed up. You get to the door. They they have a, like a little window, you know, where someone peeks their head out and kind of checks on who you are, make sure that you have a membership card and and will welcome you in. So I had my card. They welcomed me in. Um, I said I was solo. And so I said, I'd be happy to sit at the bar and, um, if that was better for them or better for me. Um, and so that's, that's what I did. I ended up sitting at the bar. Um, there were two bartenders working and great, great service, uh, some banter with them and, um, it was a good crowd. And, um, I was there on the earliest side. I feel like this place probably picks up a little late night, but not that early. I was there like seven thirty, eight, nine. I guess it wasn't that early, but I think I think this place is more happening, let's say, at midnight. Um, but it was lively, and I ordered. Um, it was kind of hard to decide what to get, but I'll tell you in a minute what I got. Um, I was taking photos, as I always do, and um, the, the doorman actually came by and said, it's a no-photo policy, which I didn't realize. Um, so now I know. Uh, their, their motto is, what happens at Polizzi stays at Polizzi. Um, I also found out it's cash only and they have an ATM on site. So they make that convenient for people. Um, anyways, I had a good time. So what did I get? Well, they start you out with the bread basket, which is a trio of Grissini, uh, Grissini, I'm saying that right. Uh, sesame semolina rolls and some little mozzarella stuffed fritters, all very tasty. And then I ordered, I got the classic Caesar which, Roma- which had romaine shaved parmigiano and imported anchovy. I got raviolo vasto, which is 
spinach, ricotta, and egg yolk. I got lamb chops marinated with garlic and parsley. And for dessert, I had mom's ricotta cheese pie, with had, which had almond crust and amarena cherry, and I had an espresso. So my take it was all delicious. The Caesars, wonderful Caesar. I was talking to the bartender. I think he was like, this is the best Caesar in the city. And I'm like, it was a pretty damn good Caesar, I would, I would say. Um, so I enjoyed that. Really well-dressed, crispy lettuce. Um, the pasta was great. It's one giant raviolo on a plate. Um, I think it's one of their signature pastas that they had. So I wanted to get that. They told me, you know, the lamb chops were really popular when like a must order, um, not something I typically get, but it was fantastic. It was two little lamb chops with delicious meat, um, very tasty. And then also not something I get a lot, um, like cheese pie ever or cheesecake, but, um, Wonderful. So it was a really great meal. Um, it sounds like a lot of food and I did, I mean, I didn't finish everything, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't overload. I mean, the portion sizes, the lamb chops were, you know, they were smaller lamb chops. And so, um, those I finished, I didn't like eat the whole salad and get through it all. It was, it was too much, but I was glad I got a taste of everything. So the ambiance, um, it's, I'd say it's like a low-key, swanky supper club. It's got a big bar, intimate dining room, and good vibes. I'd say it's perfect, perfect for a fun night out with friends or solo. So interesting tidbit. So on their website, they list some of their house rules or all of the house rules. I'll share some of them. Um, they say members only, cash only, uh, no loud, obnoxious behavior, proper attire required, Gentlemen must remove hats and no flip-flops or sweatpants are allowed. Do not linger outside the front stoop. Smokers can use the backyard. Uh, and as I said, what happens at Polizzi stays at Polizzi. Um, and there's more. It goes on talking about, uh, yeah, a little more of the policies. But it's a very friendly place. So um, I think they're just, you know, it's a member's club. They're trying to go by the rules here. So personal fun fact, uh, in Philadelphia, I was only there for one night, but some of the, the eating I did, I was able to check out Honeysuckle Provisions, which I mentioned during the panel, uh, which was fantastic, a great breakfast there. Um, I also did make it to El Mercury, um, and that was delicious. And I had a quick breakfast at Co-op, which is the restaurant at the study hotel where I stayed, and they took really wonderful care of me Um at the hotel, I had a really nice room, and it was uh, it was it was lovely to be there. Um, and then conference eats; they really have a, a great lineup of Philly-based, uh, mostly I think Philly-based um, uh, food. And uh, one highlight is always South Philly barbacoa. Their tacos can't go wrong with those. Okay, so Polisi Social Club. The cost of my meal: sixty-two dollars not including tax and gratuity. I, I think it's members' prices. I ordered a lot, and it was what I would say re very reasonable. Um, would I go back? Yes, if they allow me in. Happy to go back. Uh, their website is polizisocial.com and Instagram at polizisc. So there you go. Thank you for the hospitality there. Um, I did have a really nice time. Okay, so that's the show. Uh, 
Big thanks to Sisterly Love Collective, the study at University City, Co-op Restaurant and Bar, the Philly Chef Conference, Fox Glove Communications, Fiden, Heritage Radio Network, my panelists, Sophia DeLeon, Melissa McGrath, and Sybil St. Odd Tate. Um, and thanks to everyone that came to our panel and who bought books. I signed copies. That was fun. I'm going to keep signing copies and keep doing events and figuring out promotions and things for this book. So you'll be hearing more from me. Um, you can get the book now. It's available at fiden.com or wherever books are sold and um, appreciate the support. Um, and also big thanks. I want to thanks, give more thanks to Fiden, my publisher. Um, shout outs to Emily Takudis, Amelia Taragni, Lynn Ciclioni, the CEO, Keith Fox, Siobhan Bent, Alex Kumbas, and Tessa Houston. Those are mostly my, my main team that I'm working with. And um, I really appreciate all that you're doing for ChefWise in the book and, and to be a part of the Fiden family. It's very special. Um, as I said, books are available wherever books are sold. Um, you can check it out. And um, here's to being ChefWise. And you can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also in iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. I'm your host and producer and author, Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then. And thank you, as always, for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. <laughs>